Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research. So welcome, Russell Fryer, to the All Points West podcast. Russell is Chief Executive of Critical Metals, which is listed in London. Just to give you all a, a bit of a background on Critical Metals, it's an investment vehicle that was formed to identify and acquire brownfield mining opportunities in the strategic metals sector. Now, these are metals that have been identified as playing an important role in economic and technological development, as well as national defence. Beryllium, tantalum, copper, vanadium, tin, antimony, and cesium. Russell, you've got a a 28-year investment career spanning spells as chairman of Western Uranium Corporation in Canada, chair of Ecometals, and you've also worked at various banks. I mean, all of that sort of stuff people can see in your bio on the company website. But I wanted to take you back to your childhood in Johannesburg, South Africa, because your career path was meant to take a slightly different trajectory. So tell us about your childhood dream of being an airline pilot, which is kind of almost the family business, really, isn't it? Because you're both your dad and your sister are, are pilots. Yeah, that's right. As all sons do, they look up to their fathers. And uh, my father was an airline pilot for very well-known airlines, you know, Delta, Northwest. And actually, funny enough, he was going to varsity in the U.S. I was actually born in Flagstaff, Arizona, when he was going to varsity there. And got hired by Howard Hughes. Well, Hughes Air West was the airline, but it was Howard Hughes, the eccentric billionaire, that was the first job. And my father ended up flying all the Asian routes, 747s. And, you know, I wanted to follow in his footstep as a as a light year, as a child. And, um, you know, I was going to university. I went to Witts in Joburg, and I went to Randolph-Racons University in Joburg. But uh, my engineering was, was done at Arizona State University. And I just decided one day I didn't want to be an engineer but I wasn't quite sure, so I switched to a, a business economics degree, finished that up in, in South Africa. And never in my life would I have thought that uh, get involved with the mining industry. I always thought that, you know, it was some type of uh, engineering uh, type, because uh, my apprenticeship was, was with what is now known as Honeywell. And so I worked on the B-1 bomber, which is kind of obsolete now because they have the B-2 bomber. And I worked on Apache helicopters and Sikorsky helicopters and and such. So I always thought it would be more along those lines, you know, on the ground design. But what happened was I was living in Johannesburg and Deutsche Bank actually called me up and said, hey, you want to move to the U.S.? We need someone that understands Africa and mining. And so I moved in 2004 from South Africa to the U.S. And there was just a scarcity of mining knowledge and mining professionals and such in New York at that time and in the U.S. in particular. And so uh, a big hedge fund, a $3 billion hedge fund came and picked me up from Deutsche Bank and I ran the metals and mining portfolio there. And that was, that was great because at one time we had over a hundred million dollars in the Congo in 2006, seven. And that was before anybody actually really knew about the Congo. And, um, you know, ever since then I've been, been managing and investing in, in mines. And in fact, I remember my first mining investment, I was living in Durban, South Africa. I was, was a listed company called Rareco, and Rareco is what's now known as Steenkamp Crawl in South Africa. It's a rare earth deposit, stroke mine that's been on care and maintenance. But uh, yeah, that was in 1992 mm. when they started in, uh, investing in, in mining stocks in the mining sector. So uh, here we are, fast forward a little bit, and I was thinking the other day, I, I couldn't ask for a better job. 
and travel the world and meet interesting people, you know, sleep out in tents in the middle of nowhere in Africa. I dodge malaria carrying mosquitoes. And then uh, you jump on an airplane and you're in London or New York, uh, you know, mixing with uh, like-minded individuals. So mm. it's it's been a fantastic ride. Yeah. And obviously, South Africa these days is a completely different place. But just try and take us back a little bit. You grew up in apartheid South Africa. What was that like? So from a professional viewpoint, uh, because of the skill shortage, you got thrown in the deep end and it was sink or swim. Obviously, apartheid is a, is a apparent uh, abominability on, uh, on society. But at that particular time, you had to do everything. Right, and so um, I remember. I remember having we were at my house, we were at a house I lived in, and we had to make a decision on whether we were going to put in a brick road, a brick driveway. And we said, if we didn't find the money today, it would be twenty percent more costly twelve months from now. So, you know, interest rates were in the high teens. I think actually it even hit twenty percent at one point in time. Hmm. So, and what's interesting about about that story is because let's say six, twelve months ago, when inflation was really peaking. A lot of these fund managers and a lot of people in the mining industry hadn't experienced this high inflation environment on a global basis, right? Mm-hmm. So you know that you know to transport something from Durban to the Congo, there's always inflation. But uh, just across the board, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in Europe, whether you're in North America, South America, the inflation rates have just been diabolical. And there's not a lot of people have seen that in the cycle. So, you know, the, the only... I guess positive to come out of that apartheid area is, is the ability to manage assets in a high inflation, volatile environment. And at that time, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange was roughly 40 to 45% mining stocks. So you couldn't help but not have some type of exposure to the mining sector. Now, I would suggest that it's, it's probably 15 to 20%, right, in Johannesburg. You know, it's still a small I mean, if you take the market caps of Apple and Microsoft and NVIDIA and some of these, you know, those five companies, the market cap is greater than, uh, you know, some of the London Stock Exchange, right? And the mining sector is a subsector of of that. So, you know, the mining sector has shrunk for various reasons. One is obviously lack of capital. Number two, people don't have that exploration risk. And number three, there's still not a lot of mine engineers and geologists being minted through the tertiary education system. Nobody yeah. wants to grow up and say, I want to be a geologist, yeah. a mine engineer. They want to grow up and be the next, uh, you know, app developer, next Zuckerberg and such. Yeah. That takes me neatly on to my next question, which is that apart from kind of dreaming of being an airline pilot, what were you like at school? In my elementary school, let's say, I was a good student. But I think during high school, when I became a better athlete, it was proportional. The better athlete I became, the worse student I became. And at college, I was remarkably average. I got by with, you know, what were really grades of 70% or so, which is a solid C, you know, average. And what I learned, um, what I've learned in this career is I'm learning every day. So I'm learning every day about how to deal with cultural issues in the Congo or or Rwanda or Tanzania or even South Africa. They can't teach you that adversity. And, And so the biggest lessons of my life were never taught in varsity. They were taught in the real world how to deal with people mm-hmm. and how to look at cultures and how to ingratiate yourself and integrate. And so I look back, and engineering is a bit tricky, but it was almost a box-ticking exercise because the real world is completely different than what I learned at varsity. 
Yeah. Now you mentioned there that you became a much better athlete. And I know just from previous conversations with you that you got quite into rugby and you're a big rugby fan. The company, Critical Metals, was a sponsor of London Irish Rugby Club last season. Is that going to continue for next season? What can you tell me about your rugby interests these days? Sure. So that investment the London Irish was a personal investment that I did on behalf of shareholders. I couldn't imagine taking shareholder capital on a non-cash loan business and putting that into something like like London Irish. And it, it's been a fantastic relationship. And the idea was to continue that. Unfortunately, the American buyers couldn't come up with the necessary financial assurances to allow it to continue. Mm. And the current owner didn't want to continue to fund it. So... Interesting enough, the London Irish still has an ability to resurrect itself. The, the problem is, is the players have all moved on to other teams, so we'd have mm-hmm. to build it from scratch. But the, it was a novel idea. No one had done it in the mining space. And the rugby brand, particularly the premiership, in the URC, you know, it's shown worldwide. So if you think about so even the London Irish went down to Cape Town and played the Stormers, although they're lost, you know, there's people that were exposed to the Critical Metals brand. Mm. And even to this day, when I hand out a business card, I say, oh, yeah, you guys sponsor the rugby team. Now, I would like to sponsor them again, but we would have to start from scratch. But who knows? Maybe we call up Netflix and say, here's a show for you. The club that imploded is now resurrecting itself like the Phoenix, kind of like Wrexham Football and Ryan Reynolds, right? And Russell- so, uh, you know, there's... Russell, are you, are, you, are you comparing yourself to Ryan Reynolds now? <laughs> uh, he's much better looking and a lot wealthier than I am. But, you know, who knows? Stranger things have been known to happen. <laughs> sure. So the idea for Critical Metals came to you as a result of a dinner in New York in December 2018 with General David Petraeus, who was director of the CIA in President Obama's administration. Now, tell us about that. Sure. So it was actually a lunch on December 17th. And there was about six or seven of us at this lunch. And General David Petraeus had just come back from the Middle East. And um, we were talking about Afghanistan and Iraq and, you know, what the world looked like from Middle East viewpoint. And that's when he came out and said, never in the history of the world has a number two economic power not gone to war with the number one economic power. And at that point, you know, besides being flabbergasted, I uh, thought it was a typical boots on the ground, tanks, uh, missiles type of World War III. But after about a month or so of, of thinking about this, the World War III actually really was signaled in 2010 when China decided they were going to shut off their rare earth supply to Japan. And although that was a short-lived supply suppression, that was really the signal that the World War III is really going to be an economic warfare. And and we're seeing it today. I mean, it continues and it's actually growing at pace. You're starting to see laws in the U.S., you know, the IRA law. You're starting to see the EU now come out with their type of critical minerals paper, Australia and such, where now countries that are manufacturing focused all need to have a steady supply of these uh, critical minerals. And the governments, whether it's British Aerospace or whether it's Airbus, whether it's Raytheon and such, all need these minerals in order to help with the satellites and telecommunications and, again, the military applications. And so we put together the lists of Japan, Australia, EU, UK, Canada, and US at that time and said, okay, what are they importing from China? If China is going to be the trigger point for World War III, 
what are they importing from China that that these countries are reliant on in order to keep their economies going? And that's when the idea of critical metals came to fruition. And uh, funny enough, I've got in a roundabout way, I've got a an email from General David Petraeus uh, from a mutual friend, calling it visionary. You know, in 2018, nobody was really talking about this. And um, it really was thanks to him that Critical Metals was was birthed. So from there, that gave you the idea. You started up the company. And obviously, the idea for the, the company is to uh, to acquire existing mining assets. I think it took you a little while to, uh, to kind of uh, identify and purchase your first one. The first acquisition was controlling 100%. Uh, stake in Madini Occidental, which holds an indirect 70% interest in the Malulu Copper and Cobalt project, which is kind of a mid-scale asset in the Katangan Copper Belt in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Russell, what was it that attracted you to this project over all the others that you looked at? What have you done so far at Malulu? I believe that production started in January. And then if you just give us a, a brief kind of throw forward as to what comes next then for Malulu. Sure. So we have three basic tenements, which is the DNA of critical metals. One of them is any asset that we purchase has to be cash loan within 12 months or less. And the reason why that is because the stock exchanges throughout the world, Canada, Australia, even the US and the UK, are littered with corps of exploration companies that run out of capital because they've had no cash flow. And, you know, Black Swan or Two Sigma event has come, COVID, for example, and uh, the capital markets have, have frozen. So we want to be able to be in cash flow position within those 12 months in order to keep the survivability of the company. Number two, we don't want to pay more than one times EBITDA for any type of transaction. And number three, our acquisitions need to be polymetallic, which means in our particular case, copper cobalt or tin tungsten or tantalum niobium. And so we scour the world looking for brownfields opportunities in those type of minerals. And what happened was, is we had two potential uh, transactions before the Malulu transaction, but the negotiation changed. Uh, They were asking for a little bit more than we were prepared to give. So those two potential transactions fell by the wayside. One with actually a very well-known company, which I won't bring up right now. But um, And so what happened was is we found and we originally bought 57% of Medini Occidental based in Mauritius. And there's a nice t- double taxation agreement and free flow of capital between Mauritius and the DRC. So people ask why Mauritius. It's because, you know, these double taxation agreements are, are advantageous. And then what happened is I'd speak to shareholders and they said 57%, that gives us a, a see-through of 40%. You know, that's interesting, but you really need to get it to your maximum amount. And in the DRC, the minimum for local participation is 25%. So the maximum we could get to roughly is 75%. So we went back to the shareholders of Medina Occidental, of which I was one of them, and said, look, let's collapse this structure we did a one year's cash flow and we paid on a PE basis about 0.3 times price earnings to go from 57% of Medini Occidental Limited to 100% of Medini Occidental Limited. Yeah. And so what that gave us was on a see-through basis, 70% of Malulu. 
and exactly where we want to be. You know, we figure when you talk about local indigenization, the local partners must be a minimum of 25. 30% seems to be a very acceptable number throughout all the countries that we're currently having negotiations with. Yeah. So what that allowed is it allowed us to collapse the structure, start saving on some capital costs, and there's, there's further rationalization to go on, but the hard work is really done there. So with 70% of Malulu, you know, we'll hopefully start repatriating the profits out of the Congo here this year. And um, so what, uh, since you've taken it over, what, uh, what have, what's been going on on the ground? Well, if, September 12th, 2022 is really when the timer started. And we started with zero employees and we have 51 employees. That's full-time and casual. So we've added 51 jobs in that little region now. And those jobs, you know, we feed 51 people and those jobs actually help with families and such. So we've we've started on an ESG program. We have three chiefs that we have to report to. We've opened up a new oxide copper pit. That pit is roughly just over a half a kilometer long. We've hired some engineers now that have designed open pits. And um, we uh, are busy doing uh, induced polarization IP on the sulfide area, which is really the high grade, you know, 10%. We have intercepts of 30% copper in the sulfide area. And so uh, drilling started, uh, our bridge work uh, completed. And so um, we've expanded and refurbished the roads. Uh, We've, like I said, hired these people in terms of the local community. The chiefs are happy and we're busy um, looking at other M&A opportunities in the region, both on an infrastructural and uh, on a mine basis. So hopefully in the next few months, we'll have some news on, on our growth trajectory. Great. So when is it that you expect drilling to be completed there? Well, so we've got a phase one drilling program um, of 2,000 meters and start with uh, 800 meters. And we're going to look at those results. I'll release some of the uh, results into the market, give the market uh, some flavor of what we're seeing in terms of intercepts. Um, after those uh, eight holes, we'll step back and say, okay, this is an area that looks interesting. This is an area maybe we want to de-emphasize, and we'll turn around and uh, put another eight to ten holes in. But the, the area that I'm most excited about is the sulfide zone, and we've pivoted, as I signaled, uh, from primary oxide mining to primary sulfide mining. In the sulfide zones, we have data, again, the mineralization extends to 118 meters that we know of, and we're going to twin that hole. And the quality of uh, the grades of the copper sulfides, anywhere between 8% to 30%. We took a sample, and that sample came back at 12%. So we have uh, very high grades in this in this area, uh, four parallel seams. Uh, we know from our IP that it goes down at least 81 meters. That is from our own analysis, not uh, third-party analysis. So uh, it's all about uh, doing the the IP and the mapping and the geophysics. Okay. Now, uh, obviously, Malu, as we mentioned, Malulu is the first acquisition done by Critical Metals. Now, I I know you're ambitious for the business to do more deals. So, what's next? Are you close to doing anything else at the moment, or is the focus solely for the time being on getting Malulu up and running? No. So we're we're an aggressive M and A mode, and although it wouldn't seem like it. We are trying to add value in terms of our sales products. So ultimately, we want to sell cobalt hydroxide 
and copper cathode. And, and what that means is appliance or infrastructure. So our margins and our profitability would probably quadruple, certainly triple if you have a plant, because then you, you're getting the, uh, the full LME prices. So the idea would be to either build a plant or acquire some type of infrastructure. Uh, and in the meanwhile, because we've, we've been good custodians in the country so far, we've been presented with numerous other exciting opportunities that we're conducting due diligence on. Mm. And so the idea was to get our DRC assets a minimum of 20 years life of mine. And how do you do that? Well, we would obviously drill. And the drilling confirmation and the face advancement in the open pit would allow us to be able to calculate 20 years life of mine. Because ultimately, you know, we want to be a premier mid-tier critical metal supplier. And mid-tier includes copper, right? If you think about just the copper sector on its own, there are very few of any mid-tier copper suppliers right now. They're yeah. all the big names, BHP and Glencore and Anglo and such. But if you go a step further, a step below... There's very few that are investable. There's lots of explorers, but in terms of production, there's very few, and we're going to fill that gap. Sure. Do you have the cash you need to do that, to make that next step, or do you anticipate having to come back to the market to raise capital at some point? So we actually look at debt. Two of our bankers uh, putting together packages in terms of debt. I don't want to dilute shareholders. You know, my whole mantra from, from the day we started this journey is, we needed to get to 20 million pounds of EBITDA and have no more than 90 million shares in issue, mm-hmm. right? And I think we're well on that pathway. We have term sheets coming in terms of third-party debt financers. And when I say that, it's not the convertible loan notes that you issue at 25 pence and they get blown out. It's actually true debt holders who want to have the coupon every year and maybe participate in a little bit of the upside. So they're long-term investors and not short-term financial engineers. Yeah. Um, you know, we should get pretty close to the 90 million shares. And once that happens, obviously Malulu cash flow and, and makes makes positive profits pretty quickly. If we raise some capital via debt, it would be for a transaction that obviously would be cash flow positive. And so we shouldn't have to come back to the market and raise uh, equity. I certainly wouldn't raise it at these prices. Yeah. Now, nearly everybody I talk to in the mining space at the moment, there's some talk about car manufacturing, particularly electric battery manufacturing, basically because a lot of the metals uh, that are mined are going to be used in electric batteries and, and EVs for the future. There's some talk that the big car manufacturers and battery makers are becoming much more involved directly in the critical metals space in an attempt to secure supplies for the future. What can you tell us about this? Have you had any direct contact with any of them? Sure. So what's happened is the easiest win for automobile manufacturers is the carbon footprint. So for example, let's just take cobalt. So cobalt mined in the Congo, it gets trucked down to Durban or or Vira, then it gets shipped to China, where China does the refining, puts it into a cobalt chemical, which then gets sent to an EV or a battery manufacturer, which then, once that battery is made, gets shipped to, let's say, Mercedes in Germany or back down to South Africa. So what's happening is any place where there's a Ford, Mercedes, Chevy, or or GM in this case, manufacturing plant for an automobile, the talk is that these, and actually I know Mercedes in South Africa is, is looking at this very hard, 
about putting up an EV plant there. So what happens is your manganese that comes from South Africa, your cobalt that comes from the Congo, your copper that comes from wherever it needs to come from, your graphene that comes in from the region, all ends up in a battery manufacturing plant close to where the automobile is being manufactured. And that way you cut out three legs of the transportation, which cuts down on your carbon footprint. Now, a lot of these countries, Congo included, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, are all talking about putting battery manufacturing capabilities or plants in country. You know, due to the lack of consistent power and knowledge base, it's just not going to happen. Right? Um, but it will happen when you have a, a battery manufacturing hub right next to the automobile manufacturing plant. So you can go around the world and kind of pick out where the natural progression of EV battery manufacturing is coming. What's interesting, though, is I had a contact through a Tesla. And what's happening is, is there's Tesla, there's MIT, and there's a group out of South Carolina in the U.S. that have figured out how to substitute out lithium. And the reason why is because lithium is obviously on everybody's mind, but if you can't get enough of it to meet your EV product goals, you have to substitute it out. So mm-hmm. what's interesting is the Tesla's confirmed that, that they've got a battery that they think they can use in the next few years that is lithium-free. Right. And so um, it'll be an interesting, interesting dynamic to watch yeah. over the next few years. As these automobile producers and EV companies also are substituting out cobalt, but the difference is cobalt's using your nuclear power and all your high-temperature alloy. So cobalt is, is needed in, in completely different areas than uh, the EV market. So th- that's one of the reasons why we like cobalt is because you need it to be green in the nuclear power plants and you, you need it for your uh, high-temperature uh, applications. Russell Fryer, CEO of Critical Metals, I've already taken up enough of your time. Thank you ever so much for joining me on the All Points West podcast, and I wish you luck. Thank you, Carl, for having me. Enjoy your day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.